CB On Air, cutting-edge conversations with those in the central banking community. Hello, I'm Dan Hinge, news editor at Central Banking, and this is CB On Air. We're taking a slight deviation from our other podcast series to talk about post-crisis central banking. The nature of a central banker's job has changed dramatically in the past 10 years, with new roles and responsibilities emerging, and new tools for tackling the myriad of issues that central banks are now expected to stay on top of. To navigate this complex terrain, we fortunately have an expert guide, Yale University's Andrew Metric. Andrew is the first Janet Yellen Professor of Finance and Management at Yale, and one of the minds behind a new course the university is offering on systemic risk. This week we're going to be taking a broad view of the post-crisis world and asking what a modern central banker needs to know. Andrew, welcome. Hello. So, to kick off... um, Let's keep things broad. Um, what are some of the key responsibilities that central banks took on in the uh, post-2008? Well, prior to 2008, uh, central banks largely thought of themselves as being in the monetary policy business. And that's not a big surprise, uh, especially in developed countries. There was a thought that financial crises of the type that we used to see all the time in the past were, were not something that happened to developed countries anymore banking crises, that is. Of course, we all got a rude awakening in starting in 2008. And subsequent to that, in many major economies, central banks were given new responsibilities for financial stability, or some old responsibilities that they had for financial stability, they started to take a whole lot more seriously. Where we saw that organizationally is now you'll see a department or a division of financial stability in major central banks uh, that you didn't see before in many, many places. Really only the Asian central banks who got their wake-up call 20 years ago had put such things into place in, 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 with any regularity. But now around the world, in the United States, for example, the Federal Reserve Board uh, created a division of financial stability, which now has, I think, 30, about 30 uh, PhD economists in it uh, and, and, and other skilled staff members. And that division didn't exist at all uh, prior to the crisis. You see similar things throughout Europe uh, and uh, in, in many other places. So the big picture is that financial stability writ large has now become a very central role, something that you'll hear discussed in many, many meetings uh, and a top of mind of global central bankers. And how did central banks' thinking change after 2008? Um, I think it's fair to say we've seen new models, new data, new perceptions about risk. Yes, I would say all of those things. On the modeling side, it's really quite remarkable how many of the macro models that had been used at the highest level did not even have the financial intermediation sector in there with important real linkages. A lot of the world had gone over to more real models, And in these models, the financial intermediation sector was often ignored. What we've seen happen is both on the academic side and then transferring over to central banks, uh, a movement towards trying to figure out how we should actually put banks and other financial intermediaries directly into the models. Right now, I would say it's still a little bit of an add-on. We have a situation where uh, we've taken a lot of the models that we were using before and just grafted on top of them some kind of a financial intermediation sector. I would say that that is an improvement over where we were at before, um, but we have still really need a new paradigm. 
and uh, there's a lot of smart people working on that, but it's not yet done. On the data side, I would say the biggest thing is the recognition that we knew very little about uh, many, many important money markets uh, that, that were driving a lot of the short-term wholesale finance in the world, but were just that they weren't on the radar screen of central banks. So central banks in the past were spending a lot of time, uh, understandably, watching short-term interest rates that they targeted and using the instruments that they've had in their arsenal for decades to be able to target them. But there was a whole other world out there of asset-backed commercial paper, of repo, uh, of securitization that had been creating a lot of short-term money market instruments that just weren't, we weren't paying as much attention to and we just did not have great data on. Indeed, in the United States, some of the largest short-term money markets, while tracked in federal data, um, did not have the level of granularity that would enable us to see what was going on. We had statistical discrepancies in some of the difference between the demand and the supply side as great as $1 trillion. You can't really have that happen. And so there's been efforts underway to get all of the the data updated, uh, particularly for looking at the types of markets that central banks need to be paying attention to for, uh, for financial stability. In terms of the risk side, we are, our, our thinking is, is in many ways ahead of our data, or rather the data is being gathered, but the thinking requires historical data that we will probably never have. In many, many places, we see models that are a heat map kind of models of risks, uh, those heat map models of risks will have data from a variety of sectors and an attempt to see how those things interact with each other is mostly a modeling exercise since we don't have very long time series to do it all empirically. But there's a sense in that there are linkages across sectors and across countries, risks that need to be paid attention to by central banks that they weren't looking at before. You touched tantalizingly there on uh, on the models, um, which is, is something I've been digging into with the other podcast series. Um, can I push you to expand a tiny bit? Um, there's been this kind of debate over, do we try and fix DSGE models or do we uh, move to something completely different, maybe agent-based models? How do you see that panning out? Do we just need a, a greater plurality of models? I would say that... Um Look, we're never going to get rid of the DSGE models. Uh, the DSG models are, are going to be good workhorse ways to think through comparative statics on, on the real side. And, and they probably will, will always be part of the toolkit. Um, I'm not sure, however, whether or not they, those types of models are ever going to be able to properly incorporate what's going on on the financial side, in part because it's not what they're optimized for. It will always be a little bit of a uh, adding epicycles, adding things onto those to those models in a way that they're not really built for. At the other extreme, perhaps agent-based models, I think agent-based models are very useful for giving people ideas about what might happen. They're very good what might happen types of models in the sense that they enable you to the model sometimes teaches you about linkages or dynamics that might not have occurred to you outside the models. They're not, however, I think, what will happen kinds of models. They're good for expanding the way we, 
we we look at possibilities, but I don't think that they are designed to tell us or predict for us what exactly is going to happen. And that's just the nature of those beasts. They are they are uh, on purpose. Uh, very, very complex with complex dynamics, and you have to make a whole lot of uh, you have to make a whole lot of assumptions uh, uh, about exactly which agents you're going to model and 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 what their linkages will be. So we have assumptions in all models. In some cases, the assumptions are are simple, and so the models can't get us very much and don't don't necessarily tell us uh, uh, the full range of linkages that are out there. Uh, then when you have very complex models on the other side, y- y- you can end up with the opposite problem. So I think what we're going to end up with, as you suggest, is a plurality of models. The agent-based models will have a place since they help us to see things that we might not have seen otherwise. Uh, they, 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 the models, in fact, can teach us things. Uh, the DSGE models will be there because the DSGE models really help us on the real side. And, and uh, we have a lot of experience with interpreting them. But we're going to need something that's in between. And I would say that that thing that is in between has not yet been created. Uh, we, we, we see a lot of efforts that are going on. And he, here the incentives to get these things right are very high on the academic side and on the central banking side of people trying to put together models that have financial intermediation more embedded in them. But they are more traditional. They're more traditional representative agent or perhaps uh, uh, specifically modeling heterogeneous agent models. And so I think where we will go is some combination of these things, um, but perhaps less confidence, even less confidence than we had going into the crisis, that one model or two models is going to give us all of our answers. The, the art of central banking, I think, will, will stay very alive uh, going forward. Interesting. Thanks. And so in this brave new world, what kind of skills does a, a central banker need, would you say, that maybe they didn't need before the, or at least they didn't know they needed before the 2008 crisis? Well, he, here's where things get interesting, I would say, because uh, prior to the crisis, uh, there was really a tremendous need for traditional macroeconomists and monetary economists. And uh, that's what central banks needed to gear up on and needed to tool up on. Now, I think there is much more of a demand for uh, financial economists to interact with uh, the macro and monetary economists and to have more of a sense, as we talked about on the modeling side, of the linkages between the real side and the financial side. But secondarily, have an idea for how the financial system, independent of just what's going on in short-term interest rates, how the financial system, through the creation and, and the management of a wide variety of money-like assets, uh, can, can lead to macroeconomic effects and overall destabilization of the entire economic system. So specifically for skills, there's more of a need to connect the understanding of monetary theory and policy with the, uh, with the payment system and central bank operations. So those two things, they would often talk to each other not all that much. They were already in central banks. They need to talk to each other more. Similarly, on the supervision and regulation side, uh, many central banks have those functions, but they were off-siloed 
And now we're going to need much more communications between what the examiners on the ground are seeing and what uh, the monetary policymakers are, are doing. Uh, and then finally, there is our whole brave new world of thinking about all these new financial stability measures and macro prudential tools. A lot of things that just didn't exist before, things like countercyclical buffers, which are going to really require coordination and communication between uh, the, the supervisory regulatory sides and the monetary policy sides. So I, I think it's gotten more than twice as interesting <laughs> as it was before. Uh, uh, if you had to know X before to really be effective in this job, I think you got to know more than two X now. Uh, and, and that we're seeing a lot of efforts by the central banks internally and through their hiring uh, to, to build up that capability. But given, given how much they know about the first X, uh, we, we still got a long way to go before we learn everything we need to learn about the, about the other, the, new, the newer parts. Exciting time to be a central banker. Yes, it is. Andrew, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs>